So, uh, another question that I would like to know is how many of you have had overseas experience? Okay, so a good number of you have. As full-time, anyone full-time? Okay, so mostly short-term. Um, so what I'm going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about what nursing is overseas, and some of you already have a little bit of idea of that. And then I'm going to talk about little tips that I've learned over the last 30 years or so that might help some of you who are interested in heading in that direction. Um, and then we'll go into some cardiac case studies. If at any point you have a question or something you want more information about, feel free to stop me and get my attention. I would rather address your concerns and turn the talk over more to you than to just give you a spiel. So with that in mind, one of the things that's important to first recognize is in your individual location, what is the role of the national nurse? And what is your role going to be? Some of the areas we go, and we work in Asia, South America, and various countries in Africa as well. It's going to be different wherever you go. For example, in Nepal, nurses go um, into nursing school at the age of 15, which you don't know anything when you're 15. Pardon anyone who might be uh, young at that age, but... Um, a lot of maturity hasn't taken place yet, a lot of the problem solving, so that's something that you need to deal with. In some countries, it's required that they have at least a sixth grade education. So after sixth grade, they can begin nursing school. So that's another thing that you have to take into consideration. So the educational level, what their responsibilities are, and the idea of teamwork. What is their role? How do they relate to the rest of the medical team? And that's different wherever you go. In some places, the nurses will dutifully take vital signs, record the demise of the patient, and then report this information to the next shift coming on um, without actually intervening. So it's really different than the way that we're taught to do the problem-solving, patient assessment, intervention, etc., so find out what the role of the nurse is, what their responsibilities are, and especially if you're in short-term missions. You need to um, at, uh, not expect to make great changes and bring in this great Western way in a short period of time. So what is your role as you go overseas? Are you going to be doing patient care? Are you going to be acting as an educator in certain areas? There are different roles, different things that nurses do. Nurses can have a very specific role overseas that's different than anyone else on the medical team. Because of direct patient care, you're the one that develops the relationship with the patient that has the time to sit with the patient, pray with the patient, and really bond with the patient. Because of doing patient care, 
And that is also different in different areas, how much is done by the family and how much is done by the nurse. But, you know, take advantage of that. So some of the things that I've learned over the last 30 years are to, first of all, observe. Go there and observe. Don't, don't try to rush in and make things different. Gather local knowledge. See what works there, why it works there, why it's different. Be non-judgmental. And I know that this seems self-evident, but it's actually quite hard to do. When you're used to working in a situation where you have a say, where you are in control of more patient care, etc., you just have to keep reminding yourself. And another thing that is very important is be willing to learn. The people that you'll be working with know a lot more about a lot of things that you've never even heard of. So go there with an attitude of learning as well as teaching. Uh, Work with the leadership. Establish a relationship with the leaders at the hospital, the nursing director, the head nurses. Have coffee, chai with them. Work through them so they don't feel undermined or demeaned. That's very important. Learn the culture, the culture of the people as well as the medical institution that you're dealing with. For example, little things like um, in some areas, if you tell a patient, if you don't take your pills, you could die. That's interpreted as a curse. And if they do die, you're responsible for it. So know that in advance and you can avoid some problems. In other areas, it's things as simple as if you're sitting and cross your legs, that's an insult. So that's a good thing to know. And in Cameroon, that's kind of a hard thing for me to keep remembering not to do that. So learn the culture of the people that you're going to be working with and in the medical structure. What is the relationship between the nurse and the rest of the medical staff? And also, don't be in a hurry. Make small changes as you see changes that might be actually useful. For example, um, in Nepal, I was in the wards one day, and these, the patients who had oxygen were having a hard time keeping it in place, and it was never in their nose, and it was all over the face. So I just showed some of the nurses how, well, if you put it on from the front and around the ears, then it's going to stay a little bit better. I gained so much credibility with them from that one little change that it was kind of an in with making other little changes. So little things at a time. In Kenya, they have the saying, haraka, haraka, hyena, baraka, which means hurry, hurry has no blessing. So take your time, observe, especially on your first trip to one place. You know, make, make little um, suggestions, but don't be in a hurry for change to take place. And most of all, most importantly, pray, pray, pray. Pray for yourself, for wisdom, for knowledge. Pray for your patients, specifically for all your patients that you're going to be interacting with. Pray for the staff, for their wisdom. Model compassion 
In many countries, the relationship between the medical staff and the patient does not include compassion. So model that. Be an example of servanthood, of Christ-like love, and you will affect people. Things that we might just assume, but keep it in the forefront of your knowledge. Okay, so on to cardiac cases. Any questions or comments, things that you've learned, experienced? Okay, so we're going to take a 28-year-old previously healthy school teacher with six weeks of progressive dyspnea on exertion. Now short of breath at rest, she has paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea and orthopnea. So this is in Madagascar, and she, we arrived on the scene, and we were asked to consult on this person, this young lady, and her history included a deterioration despite diuretics and antibiotics. She's HIV negative. She has two live healthy children, last pregnancy completed four months previously, no fevers, no recent joint inflammation or skin rashes. So fevers, we're ruling out what? Okay, um, and TB is another thing. Oh, by the way, when we first arrived in Africa many years ago and, you know, asked about their cardiac patients, we were kind of faced with what cardiac patients? So remember, not all dyspnea is tuberculosis, okay? So um, the joint inflammation and skin rashes, rheumatic fever. Okay, so on exam, she has a pulse of 110, blood pressure 60 over 40, barely palpable, respiratory rate's 26, O2 sat is 88 on 4 liters nasal cannula. Not a good situation. She has jugular venous distension with hepatic jugular reflex. Everyone familiar with that? So once you see the neck veins, and neck veins are good, and they're in a recumbent position, when you press on the abdomen, push up on the liver, if, you, if that increases, if you can see that increase, that's a sign of right-sided failure. So remember, right-sided failure and left-sided failure are two different things, right? The right side's a low-pressure system, doesn't have to work very hard, thin-walled muscle. The left side's the high-pressure system. It has to exert enough force to get blood to the entire body. So we want to check to see what part of her heart is actually being affected here. So because she has this increase in neck veins with um, pressing on the abdomen, that's showing us that she has actually right-sided failure. Um, at the same time, she has rails over the lower half of her lung fields um, and some mild wheezing. So in addition to her right-sided failure, she also has left-sided failure. So left-sided failure is going to back up to the lungs. Right-sided failure is going to back up into the system. So she has both. She has mild lower extremity edema, which we would expect with right-sided failure, and she has an S3 and no significant murmur, which is also part of our differential diagnosis when we're thinking maybe valvular involvement. So she has no significant murmur, so it's not valve. Remember that a S3 is low pitch. So when you listen with the bell, 
as you hear this extra sound and you press harder and harder until it becomes the diaphragm-like, if it goes away, then that's the S3. If it stays prominent, then it's an opening snap. So just a little trick that you can use. Okay, labs, hemoglobin is 10.4, creat's up a little bit, and her potassium is also up a little bit. So we know that she has heart failure, we know that she's hypotensive, so she's actually in what? She's in cardiogenic shock, right? She has a blood pressure, a systolic of 60, she's in cardiogenic shock. And we can see here some of the results of that cardiogenic shock in that she's had a hit to her kidneys. So her creat is going up. And that's as a result of a couple of different things. First of all, you have decreased blood flow and oxygen flow to the kidneys. At the same time, you have cellular death and destruction causing metabolites and debris in the circulating system that can affect the filtration of the kidneys. So it's that multi-system failure as a result of her cardiogenic shock. On x-ray, she has marked cardiomegaly, and that's defined as a heart that fills more than 50% of the shadow on an AP x-ray. And bilateral cephalization. Cephalization, for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, is just when the bottom of the lungs are filling up with fluid, you use more of the top part of the lungs, the cephalization, the cephal toward the head, and so you have more air actually in the top part of the lungs, and that's another sign of failure. Um, EKG, no paper, wouldn't have shown us much anyway, and this is her echo. One thing that I would recommend if you're at all interested is learn a little bit of echo. It's, it's the third world CT scan. It can be used for so many things and can give us information that we can't get anywhere else. So a few things you'll notice on this, atria at the bottom, ventricles at the top, um, is that it's not squeezing very much. It's not moving very well. Her ejection fraction on this echo was t about 10. So she's in some pretty severe cardiogenic shock. So what is the most likely cause of this patient's cardiomyopathy? Acute rheumatic myocarditis, pericardium, cardiomyopathy, idiopathic or viral, or infiltrative? How many think A? B? C? Or D? Okay, the only hands that went up were for B, for pericardium, uh, partum cardiomyopathy, and indeed that was the case. It can present towards the end of pregnancy or even up to six months after. So we know that this dilated cardiomyopathy um, is increased in sub-Sahara Africa. Um, the incidence is more than twice as common as other parts of the world. Etiology is unknown. There are a number of risk factors that are involved, age greater than 30, mere um, multi-parity, multi-fetal, et cetera. Um, but even in this country, those of African heritage have a greater incidence of um, peripartum car cardiomyopathy. 
So, so getting back to our patient in cardiogenic shock, she's now developed bruising, hemoptysis, GI bleeding, extremities are cool, slightly mottled, she's obviously in shock, and now she's DIC. So she's starting to, to bleed, she's got GI bleeding going on. The first treatment, of course, is to support her blood pressure. So in shock, the first thing that we want to do is support blood pressure. Well, cardiogenic shock is a little bit different than other types of shock in that all of your compensatory mechanisms are going to increase the problem. So as your sympathetic nervous system causes peripheral constriction, the cool, mottled um, extremities, it's, your kidneys are going to save water in order to try to get that blood pressure up. Your heart is going to go faster because your stroke volume is so small, you're going to become tachycardic. All of these things are going to compound the problem. It's not a volume problem, and the more volume you dump on this struggling heart, the worse off it's going to be. So how do we know when is enough fluid? In this case, we didn't have dopamine or other inotropes available. In Nepal, we did, but nobody knew how to use it. Um, so we, we go with fluids. How do we know how much fluid to give? This is another case where echo is extremely valuable. If you can identify the um, IVC by just, it's a quick look probe under the rib through the liver. So you're looking through liver here. Here's your IVC. Here's your hepatic vein. If you go two centimeters back, and that's what these marks are for measuring, from the hepatic vein, you measure that distance. That will give you what the CVP is. So even without CVP, you can measure the patient's volume. So once you measure that number less than uh, one, you're dealing with a CVP of about five, then 10, or one to 1.5 is 10, 1.5 to two is 15. Um, and greater than two, you have a CVP of like 20. So you know where to measure it. You know how to find a CVP. Remember that no patients should die dry. So make sure that you're giving them enough fluid. Remember that your IVC will contract with respiration, and if it contracts greater than 50% with respiration, you actually have to subtract 5 from the number that you got on the previous calculation. So if it contracts a lot, it shows that they are extremely dry. Now, on this young lady, we'll call her Grace, we actually pushed her CVP up to just over 20. Now, you don't really normally want to go above 20 because once you increase right-sided pressures above 20, you're going to start decreasing left-sided pressures because it impinges the on the on the left side. So it's a careful balance there, which is one more reason that it's so important to be able to monitor the CVP even without the typical monitoring kinds of situations. So we're going to monitor her MAP, her mean arterial pressure. 
because um, sometimes you're not going to get a systolic pressure where you want it to be. But if you can get the whole mean or, um, pressure up greater than 60, you have adequate perfusion pressure. You need a, a mean of 60 in order to, ha- to perfuse adequately brain and heart. So that's kind of our target. That's where we're headed for. Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. In, in most everywhere we've gone, they do have echo. And we've been into some pretty um, out-of-the-way kinds of places. The echo machines now are small. They're compact. They've gotten a lot less expensive. Um, there are methods that you can use for measuring CVP, the old manometer type um, that we used to use in the old days, but you have to have that with you. So the only thing that you can do if you don't have a way of directly monitoring CVP is to monitor your patient. So you push fluids until you see that you're you're not getting where you want to go. It'll improve, and this is the nursing part of it, that continuous assessment of the treatment that's planned. So what you want to do is give fluids. It'll improve blood pressure for a while at a point where it starts to drop again. You know you've gone too far. And remember, your patients are third spacing and and losing volume that way as well. So, you know, don't be afraid to for your patients to become extremely edematous. They are going to lose some of their fluid as they, as they have that shifting with the metabolites um, as you have cell damage. So um, just close, careful monitoring. So I'm going to touch a little bit on um, medical treatment, even though in most areas nurses don't do the prescribing, but that's not true in every case. But after we have her now fully um, volume, we're going to add digoxin for the inotrope to increase that squeeze. She's not ischemic, so we don't have to worry about that. Um, Dig will help with getting good forward flow. It's an inotrope. It helps with the squeeze. But it doesn't change anything with the neurohormonal activation. And we know that heart failure has neurohormonal um, implications to it. It's available everywhere. Um, it can be given IV or oral. Um, it's not expensive. It is generic. So it is available in different places that you will go. And it's evidence-based in this level of heart failure. So six days later, she's on DIG. Uh, We gave her a full loading dose, even though her creat was up a bit. Um, And she's on diuretics, so even though we're giving fluids, we're also giving diuretics. Like most things in nursing, there's a balancing act going on, and your careful assessment of your patient is so important. She now has a blood pressure of 85 over 60, so her MAP would be 
something around that, so her MAP is okay. Um, her creat's a little bit better. Her potassium is okay. Um, and as we're talking about diuretics, even though a lot of the things that we're doing seem a little bit counterintuitive, because we're giving fluids and we're giving diuretics, some of the things to keep in mind with this, um, with the diuretics, is they do decrease stretch on the ventricle, so they can actually increase forward flow by decreasing regurgitation. So as you stretch out that ventricle, you're stretching out your valve as well, and you get less forward flow because of regurgitation. If you shrink that ventricle, it becomes more effective. So you're adding that forward flow onto your increased stroke volume. It decreases systemic vascular resistance, so the heart doesn't have to work as hard pushing forward, um, which is also good. So what change would you make next to her meds? Adding beta blockers, adding ACE inhibitors, adding a beta blocker and an ACE inhibitor, or adding a beta blocker, ACE inhibitor, or spironolactone. How about A? B, C, D. Okay, so we got a couple of votes for both A and B. And the next thing that we would actually add, and remember the DIG is in this class for heart failure, so that is going to be weaned off over time. Um, but we want to add an ACE inhibitor. Again, it's a little bit counterintuitive in somebody who has a low blood pressure because we know that ACE inhibitors will drop blood pressure. They decrease systemic vascular resistance, um, so they can drop blood pressure. So you really need to start very, very low dose, you know, cutting those pills in halves or even quarters and see as your patient tolerates it. Your goal is to now affect part of the neurohormonal effects of heart failure. As our compensatory mechanisms kick in, you have all of these things circulating through that can damage the myocytes, um, and your, your neurohormones can be 5 to 20% higher than normal. So once you get up into that kind of range, they actually become poison. So we want to block that from happening, and that's where we add the ACE inhibitor. So even though it seems a little counterintuitive, it's not only going to help with that neurohormonal effect, but it will also decrease systemic vascular resistance, again, helping the heart to have better forward flow. And that's our goal. After that, after we have optimized their ACE inhibitors, now we can add the beta blockers. So all of the studies have been done with first your diuretics and your ACE inhibitors, DIG only in class 4, which she was at that time, and then starting low-dose beta blockers. Beta blockers will slow the heart, um, help it to become more effective in each contraction, you want to start out slow again, watching at, for um, adverse reactions, um, checking daily weights, etc. 
This is something that we would start later. Obviously, you're not going to give beta blockers to a class four heart failure patient. So some of the things to think about in dealing with heart failure. Um, you may have difficulty maintaining diuresis if you're giving PO um, Lasix. Remember that this edema isn't just this peripheral edema. Your gut also has edema. So absorption is less. So as the edema goes away, it may become more effective. If you're having trouble getting diuresis with PO, suspect that's what it is. Go to IV for a while, and then you can transition back to PO. Um, then your ACE inhibitors, your beta blockers. We didn't start her on spironolactone um, because a number of patients, up to 25%, will increase their creat and potassium. So that wasn't something that we wanted to work on with her already having some renal problems. Yes? Which one? Spironolactone? Uh, it's a drug that's been around for many, many years. It's cheap. Um, it's easily available. Um, although I've heard in some areas it's actually not so cheap. Um, and it's been well studied in heart failure to increase or to decrease mortality. So we do add it on patients. It um, is more effective in certain genetic groups than others, and Africans and African Americans are among those um, group of people. So you may hear about it being used specifically in that group. So if you look at um, heart failure as we would treat it here in the different classes, she was obviously a level four, which here would be, she'd be on a transplant list, she'd get an LVAD, um, or it would be an end-of-life kind of situation. Well, none of those were um, what we were considering. So in resource-limited, you deal with what you have, you work with what's available, um, and actually, she did well. She was discharged 12, uh, after 12 days. Her ejection fraction at that point was up to 30%, and she had class 2 symptoms. She will probably have these problems forever, um, but it's now within the treatable range. So from a nursing education point of view, um, some of the um, patient teaching involves, you know, getting a scale, checking your weights, monitoring that on a daily basis. She can even have kind of a sliding scale for her diuretics. When the weight goes up this amount, increase your Lasix. If she's not really living close to the hospital anyway, which is a, a, in many cases the case. Okay, any questions? How are we doing? Yeah. With the sliding scale Lasix, how do you know how much they need? Or is it like you're in a position? How do you determine the scale? Um, yes. You would be working with the physician. In my case, I just bring my husband along, so that helps a lot. Um, 
But you can even set up recipes, you know, that are evidence-based, you know, documented treatment. And, and even in the states, we can have um, those kinds of protocols where patients will weigh themselves and they'll, you know, take an extra Lasix if the weight goes up three pounds. Um, you know, so, so it's, it's been done for a long time. Um, patients do well with it. Mm-hmm. Well, for one thing, their tachycardia is compensatory. If you slow down the heart rate of somebody with a very small stroke volume, what's going to happen? Yeah, you're going to drop their pressure to zero. Yeah. That's a really good question. And depending on where she lives um, and how much of her diet consists of bananas and other um, high-potassium foods, that is something that we would want to keep in consideration. We would want to monitor her over time and see how she reacts to it, um, what her dietary intake is, and perhaps even add a potassium if that would be required. It is. Um, so, so on the other hand, in those patients who are on it, you definitely have to see what their dietary intake is in order to make sure that you don't get high potassiums as well. Good point. Okay. I'm going to just quickly do one more case. We have only 15 minutes, and I want to um, end with time for discussion. So here we have a 54-year-old woman with increasing dyspnea and weakness. She has to sit up in order to breathe well. She's chronically ill-appearing. Blood pressure is 80 over 65. She has low-grade TAMP. Heart rate's 110. Lungs are clear. Heart is distant. Any ideas? Okay. This is her chest x-ray, or one similar to it. It's not the typical, it's not the exaggerated that we might be looking for for her actual um, diagnosis, um, but we'll keep that in mind. Anything strike you here? How many of you are used to looking at 12 leads? Mm, nope. It does look a little wide just because it's so short. But The thing that you might notice, and right across the bottom is just a continuous rhythm strip, is that every other beat looks different. You see that? Anyone have an idea of what that's called? 
it's not hypertrophy. You would want to, in hypertrophy, you'd want to see big QRSs. In fact, going off the page or overlapping each other kind of thing. What she's got there is something called electrical alternans. Ring a bell? So every other beat has a little different vector. So something is changing her vector with every other beat. In her case, as in the case with most patients with electrical alternans, she has tamponade. It can be seen with effusion uh, before it gets to the point of tamponade, but she has hypotension with a narrow pulse pressure. She's tachycardic. She has elevated jugular venous distension without um, failure. So she has tamponade. So what's going on is she has fluid of some kind surrounding the heart that is compressing the heart. So you've got this, these distant heart sounds. Um, she's tachycardic because you have low stroke volume. So the heart's not able to relax in diastole and fill. So you have little volume. So you become tachycardic to make up for that. What simple bedside test would help you determine if the patient has need of an urgent pericardial tap? Okay, echo would give you some information. But what simple bedside test can the nurse do? That would give you some idea of her compensatory mechanism, how much um, peripheral constriction she's got ongoing. But one thing that we can do is check for a significant pulses paradoxus. Okay, I'm comfortable with the measurement of, of pulses paradoxus. I want to review, or what is it? How many for one? Nobody. Okay, so I'm going to tell you about pulses paradoxus. Pulses paradoxus is when you're checking the blood pressure. You know that you have decrease in blood pressure with, it, with inspiration normally because you increase your, neck, your inner thoracic pressure that exerts pressure on the heart, decreasing volume. That's normal. So as you're checking somebody's blood pressure, you take it up to systolic, and what you'll notice is that you'll hear it, lose it, hear it, lose it, hear it, lose it, and then hear it, hear it, hear it, hear it, hear it. Okay? And on everybody to some degree. So as you hear the sound, you'll lose it in inspiration. You'll hear it again. So it goes with the respiratory cycle. That number will then... Um, if it's greater than 10 millimeters of mercury from where you first hear it to where you hear it continuously, it shows a significant pulses paradoxus. So it's an easy, quick bedside test you can teach anybody to do. I taught a bunch of medical residents to do it at the University of Minnesota recently. They were thrilled. Um, there are different causes of tamponade, so now we have to determine what is the cause of hers. Um, could be um, a lot of different things. In her case, it, it, 
the diagnosis. We've done our objective. She's hypotensive, dysmic, hepatomegaly, so she's got back pressure towards the liver. Looking for Beck's triad, which you may remember from school. Increased venous pressure, decreased arterial pressure, muffled heart tones. We've done our pulses paradoxes. We've seen electrical alternans. Low voltage on our EKG and, and signs of pericarditis. So especially if it's blood in the pericardium, that's very irritating. So you can have signs of pericarditis, which is the pain, especially on uh, recumbent or supine. Um, You can have EKG changes that are indicative of pericarditis, particularly PR segment depression or ST segment elevation. That's more widespread than the distribution of one coronary artery, so you know that it's not an ischemic change. On the chest X-ray, that I showed, there's a little bit of that bottle shape to it where you lose some of your fine edges, um, although it wasn't a perfect one for that. And it, actually, you have to be in some pretty significant volume in the pericardium before it's even going to show up on x-ray, about 250 cc's. So you can imagine that that's pretty um, significant. And then, of course, diagnosis is ultimately made with echocardiogram. In the old days, what we used to do in order to treat this tamponade was pericardial synthesis, pericardial tap, that we would do without echo. So um, the way that you would do it is you take a needle, go sub-xiphoid, And you have your needle attached with a sterile alligator clamp to the V-lead of your EKG machine or your monitor or whatever you have handy. And then you put the needle into the pericardium and you keep going until you see current of injury pattern. You see an increase because you're monitoring through the needle now. You're doing your EKG through the needle. So when you touch the the myocardium, you're going to have SD segment elevation. You're going to have current of injury pattern. So what you want to do is back up a little bit so you're not taking the blood out of the ventricle and then take it out of the pericardium. Now with echo-guided, we can look for other areas where you might get a little bit more direct visualization of where it is. But it, it worked. Okay. Is that There are always exceptions, but in general. But they might not even know that. And you might be able to tell someone that this is an option, you know. So if your patient's life depends on it, you know, be an advocate for them. That's what we do. So here you see the heart. Oh, my pointer's not working. And you can see the fluid around the chambers. The one that's dented in is the right ventricle. Remember that the right side is thin-walled. It's low pressure. So it's really affected more and earlier than the left side. I don't know if I'm going to get this to move.
Okay, so, so you can see that all that black area around it is fluid. And this one really gives you an idea of that heart being shifted around there, that changing vector. That's what gives you that electrical alternance. Okay, so her um, diagnosis actually was tuberculosis. So this was one case where it was actually TB. So do you do four drugs, three drugs, four drugs plus uh, steroids, three drugs uh, plus steroids? How many say one, two, three, four? Okay. So, the rule for treating TB, four, uh, four drugs for two months and two drugs for four months. It's really easy to remember. Even I can remember that. So, after that, or at what point do we add the steroids? We know that steroids actually are beneficial in these patients. Um, so, it is something that we would add and then taper off. And I'm actually going to quit at that point. Um, I think we're, oh, yeah, we're absolutely out of time. So I, I'll stay for questions, comments. Make sure you fill in your evaluation. You know, be an advocate for your fellow nurses as well. Thank you.